He said, okay, uh, how are you going to do this? And I said, well, I'm going to get on some crutches, and I'm going to go up there and get on the scooter. And she said, it makes me nervous. And I said, it makes me nervous, too. (laughs) So, Julia, we survived the first part, all right? You helped me get off the stage, and we might be all right. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. This morning, uh, I've been praying about what to prayerfully reflecting on what to do over the next uh, four times we have together before uh, Christmas. And we've got today, we've got the 17th, we've got the morning of the 24th, and then we've got our communion service on the 24th at 4 o'clock. And I've just been thinking about reflections on Advent. I think one thing that's fascinating is uh, I was talking to uh, a couple or uh, one of my good friends and and saying, you know, being here for uh, 16 years gives the opportunity to have a lot of Christmas messages, usually about three or four. And so when you get into uh, 16 years, that's about 50 uh, Christmas messages over that period of time. And, uh, And so it makes you sometimes think a little bit differently or think more in depth and think about other passages and to just reflect on the mystery of the incarnation. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to look at a passage with you. I've entitled it, The Mystery of the Incarnation. And what we're going to do is try to look at three observations about the incarnation. Three observations. I want you to think today, and then this really hit me going through our church history class. When we think about the incarnation, I want you to think about in your mind right now, if somebody came up to you and said, I heard you're a Christian, what does it mean when we talk about the incarnation? What would you say? What would you tell them from, you know, you could be a a sixth grade student and you could be, you know, in your 80s, 90s. What would you say to somebody? And I want to read you a definition that I came across Uh, The incarnation, the doctrine expressed in the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon, that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten before all the ages, and of one substance with the Father, was made flesh through the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, making him truly God and truly human, possessing two natures which are not confused, changed, divided or separated. And and you may think of that and go, wow, that's a lot of detail. Why all the detail there? Well, you got to remember, I mean, in the early centuries of the church, we had so many different heresies as it related to the nature of Christ, as it related to the Trinity, as it related to who Jesus was. I I was looking at a a definition or a statement by uh, Stephen Cole, a pastor that I have a lot of respect for. And, and he said, all of these imbalances were worked out at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, which affirmed that Christ is one person with two natures, the divine and the human, in unchangeable union. It maintained the unity of Christ's person while distinguishing between his two natures, which are not confused or abolished because of the union. It makes me think about when we get into 
the passage in Matthew when Jesus is with his disciples and he looks at his disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? You remember that passage in Matthew 16? And, and they're eager to answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I was watching a video. I've had a lot of time on my hands over the last couple of weeks. And I was watching a video of this gentleman uh, who was doing Jewish evangelism outside of the Temple Mount in um, Jerusalem. And he's a Jewish fella from New York. And he's over there and people would walk by and I've had the opportunity to do this before. And, uh, and I was fascinated by it just to see the interactions. Uh, and he would stand there and people would walk by and he'd say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And they'd stop and look at him. He says, I want to let you know I'm a Christian. I'm a Jewish um, man who believes in Christ. And I want to know what you think about that. And people would give him thoughts. They were, they were respectful, but they were very clear that he had made a, a, an incredible mistake, that he had made a horrible error in his judgment of who Christ is. You see, when we look at and misunderstand Christ, we do not believe what I just read to you about the definition of the incarnation. We don't believe that this man is the God-man. We don't believe in the incarnation as we look at the definitions of Nicaea and Chalcedon that basically are councils that affirm what Scripture taught. We don't see it at all that way. There, there's, there's a kind of a modern-day uh, catechism called the New City Catechism. And a while back, we went through this on Wednesday nights with the younger kids. And one of the questions, why must the Redeemer be truly human? So there's two questions here. Why must the Redeemer be human? Why must the Redeemer be God? I want you to think about that. Incarnation, the God-man, two natures, one person. And the answer to the first one was, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. And the next question, why must he be God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. This morning, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We went through the book of Hebrews. When we went to this passage, I wasn't looking at it from this angle, but we're going to focus on two verses today. And we're jumping in, and because we've already gone through the book of Hebrews, I pray that a lot of that will be in your mind. But we're going to look at three observations about the incarnation. Three observations about the incarnation. They're simple outline. The necessity, the purpose, and the blessings. 
the necessity, the purpose, and the blessings. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at it from two verses. I'm not going to try to cover the entire section, but just two verses, verse 14 and verse 15. And I'll read to you to give you a little idea of what's happening in the context, starting in verse 10, but again, we'll focus on those two. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. And here's the verses we're going to focus on, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to, to lifelong slavery. When we talk about the book of Hebrews, just to refresh your mind, we're talking about Christ is better. He's greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than all you can come up with. And, you know, he's the greater high priest. He's all of these. Chapter one, he's the final word. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the high priest who made purification for our sins. He sits down at the right hand of God. He's the son of God, the preeminent one, worthy to be worshiped. He's full deity, eternal ruler enthroned on high. On and on and on and on and on. In chapter one, you read about who Jesus Christ is. And what's fascinating, if you can remember with me, when we look back at Hebrews, chapter one is focused on establishing his perfect deity. He's one in nature, one in substance with the Father. But in chapter two, in order to establish why Jesus can be our merciful and faithful high priest, he wants to show them that not only does it require that he's one in nature, one in substance with the Father, but he wants to show them that he took on human flesh. He's fully God. He's fully human. In chapter 2, that's what he is doing. And we read as we jump into verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Speaking about us. We share something in common. We share in flesh and blood. All the human race shares that in common. And it says, since therefore we share that in common, he himself likewise partook of the same things. One of the most beautiful statements about the incarnation of Jesus since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. 
that word share is interesting since therefore the children share. What does it mean in that context? The children share in flesh and blood. It's, it's the idea that we have something in common with each other because we're flesh and blood. It's our common nature. We are all alike. We relate to one another because of that. But then the next word is interesting because it doesn't just say, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, but then it says Christ, he himself likewise partook. Now, what does that word mean? That word is interesting because it speaks about taking hold of something. One definition I came across says taking hold of something that is not naturally one's own kind. And the author went on to say, we by nature are flesh and blood. Christ was not. Yet he willingly took hold of something which did not naturally belong to him. Isn't that fascinating? The incarnation, God becoming man. When we think about Christmas and we think about Advent and we think about Christ has come, one of the ways that I think we need to meditate on it and reflect on it is to reflect on this idea of what was involved for Jesus to become a man. What did that mean? What are the implications of it? Why was it necessary? And that's what we see here, the necessity of it. And, and, and the necessity of it is shown that it, we needed one who was fully divine and one who was fully human in order to be a capable, faithful, and merciful high priest. If he was just divine and not human, he was not able to meet the requirement. If he was just human and not divine, he's not able to fulfill the promise. But Christ is our merciful and faithful high priest, one person, two natures. And he took hold of something that is not naturally his own, but he did it out of love and out of grace for us. I want to read you some passages that remind us of this taking on human flesh. And if you want to jot them down, I'm going to go through them quick. You might just want to write down the reference if you want to go back and look. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Immediately, what do we learn in the third chapter of Genesis is that the Redeemer, the Rescuer, is going to come through a woman, offspring. What does that mean? Well, it points us to the reality of the incarnation. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh. You see that language again. Became flesh. He likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Enmity between your offspring and her offspring. All of these point to the reality of what Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 is showing us. 
that he partook of flesh and blood. Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in, listen to the phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Passage after passage illustrates this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Philippians 2, 7, speaking of Jesus, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. There it is again, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So, so we start out and we go, okay, why is this necessary? In order to be our high priest, in order to become a substitute for our sin, he had to become a man. He had to partake of our nature. The, the awe and the mystery of the incarnation and, and, and it shows us, like you look at verse 17 in your context right there in Hebrews 2, and, and he says it a little different, but he says it the same way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in what? Every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, but not only the necessity of the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation. And, and isn't it exciting to look at Hebrews 2.14 and thinking about it through the lens of Christmas and think about how it speaks about him becoming a man. It speaks about the two natures, but then we see, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Those three words give us the purpose of why he came. The necessity is in order for him to be a qualified, capable high priest, fully God, fully man, but then why? It keeps building on itself. That through death. Isn't that fascinating that when you look at a passage that deals so specifically with the incarnation, immediately it's in order that through death, death was the reason he came. Jesus Christ was born to die. He was born to die. And we get into the whole purpose of why he came. He came to die for our sins. And, and he came to die, but look at the purpose of how verse 14 describes this death. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. We look at this and we begin to understand, you know, why, what was the purpose? Why did he come? What was this all about? Christ came to die. 
and he became a curse for us that we might live. When we look at this passage, we begin to understand the miracle that Christ was a substitute who took our place, that Christ came to break the power of death, that he came to defeat not only death, he came to defeat the devil. We look at this and we're reminded of the reality in Romans 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin brought forth death. It brought forth death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, listen to what Paul says. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of this, you speak of blinded, death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 speaks about being dead in trespasses. It says in verse 1 and in 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And listen to the words of the apostle John. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The only way that this power could be broken is if a faithful and merciful high priest, one who was fully God and fully man, would take our place at the cross and redeem us. I love this quote from uh, John MacArthur. He says, so in this regard, why did Christ become man? Why did he die? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The only way to destroy Satan was to rob him of his weapon, death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Satan knew that God required death for us because of sin. Death had become the most certain fact of life. Satan knew that men, if they remained as they were, would die and go out of God's presence into hell forever. Satan wants us to hold, Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they are dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone forever. Men cannot escape after death. So God had to wrest from Satan the power of death. And for just that purpose, Jesus came. Isaiah speaks about this conquering of death. I want you to think about it that way. I, you know, a lot of times when we think of Christmas, we may think of joy, we may think of peace, we may think of all that the, 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 you know, the, goes through our mind about the manger scene. But sometimes have, have you thought about Christmas as Christ defeating death? Christ coming, identifying with us, partaking of something voluntarily, of his own volition, of his own will, of his own grace, and coming to defeat the greatest enemies that we face, death and the devil, because of sin and because of depravity and because of the fall. And Isaiah says, he will shall swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. Hosea 13, 14, think about this passage 
when you think about the incarnation and what it results in. In Hosea 13, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And then we start going, wait a minute. We get into the New Testament. And if I were to go, and we, if we had an interactive class right now, and I said, hey, give me some ways or passages where you see Christ defeating death. Where do you see this defeat? You might mention 1 Corinthians 15. You remember that passage where when the first 54 and 55, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Paul says, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What a, what a glorious picture of hope. The Christ has come. He's taken on human flesh, and he's died in our place, defeating death and defeating the devil. I, I love this because we earlier we looked at that question from that catechism. Why must the Redeemer be human? You know, it said that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law. Galatians says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. We needed one who would keep the law perfectly. We needed a human representative, a divinely human representative who would keep the law perfectly on our behalf. And Galatians says he did. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in one way, he kept the whole law, but in another way, he suffered the punishment for human sin by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. But then we see in this passage, in the larger context, in verse 16 through 18, in the passage we're in, that he is a merciful and faithful high priest, and in his suffering now, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. We see that in the necessity of the incarnation. We see the purpose of the incarnation. But this morning, I want you to look at the blessings of the incarnation. Look at how it's phrased here. I love this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, that through death, uh, did you catch the later part of this? That through death, notice verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to what? Make propitiation for the sins of the people. He says it exactly the same thought in a different way there in verse 17, the same thought that he gives in verse 14. But here he says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
Think of the hope that we have here. The hope of the incarnation is not just seeing its necessity that, that we have no hope to save ourselves apart from God rescuing us. No hope at all. No hope for works righteousness. If Christ died, you know, if, if, if we can, if, if righteousness comes through the law, as Galatians 2.21 says, then Christ died for no purpose. We look at this and we go, okay, when we think of the incarnation, it destroys, doesn't it? Like the whole idea that we can earn our way to God. It destroys like a merit-based system where we do really well and we're graded on a curve and we're accepted into God's presence. No, the incarnation reveals to us our helplessness. It reveals God's love. It reveals Christ's willingness. It reveals so many different pictures, not only of man, but of the glory of God. But we see here that there's freedom for those who by grace through faith trust in Jesus. For those who trust in the necessity of the incarnation and the purpose of the incarnation, for those who see their need in the cross and that Jesus gave his life for us, for those who trust in that, believe in that, there's freedom. There's freedom. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The greatest fear that people have is the fear of dying. The concern of what will take place when they die. The concern of what will take place with their soul once they end their life. But here the author of Hebrews says something just tremendous. He says that in the necessary, purposeful, substitutionary death of Jesus, by grace through faith, those who trust in Christ experience freedom, experience deliverance, experience freedom from fear, freedom from slavery. Everything changes. Psalm 55, 4 says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of us will face our Creator. And if we seek salvation in and of ourselves, we will face a Creator whereby the wages of our sin is death. And there will be terror of death and the reality of an eternal hell the reality of eternal judgment apart from God. But the hope of the gospel is that when we think about the manger and we think about the reality of incarnation, he likewise partook of the same things. Why? Because Christ Jesus came to die. He came to die for sinners. He came to identify with them. He came to die in their place he took the wrath that we deserved and it fell upon him. And he absorbed the wrath. And the hope of the incarnation here is not just recognizing that the incarnation was necessary and purposeful, but the incarnation calls us to understand he came into the world not to judge the world, but to save it. 
to believe on Messiah, to believe on Jesus Christ. And it's those who trust in Christ who experience the freedom that the author of Hebrews speaks about here. Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 4, 18, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Remember when Jesus is talking to the, the Jews in John 8, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus in John 8, 36 said, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And no longer is there fear of death. That's why Paul could say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's why he could say in verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But the incarnation shows us a whole new way, a whole different reality. Jerry read for you a passage at the call to worship today. I want to read you a couple of those verses again. The incarnation, reflecting on Advent, reflect on the mystery and the necessity of God becoming man. Reflect on the, the mystery, but the purposeful nature in which Christ came. He came to die. He came to die in our place. He came to be our substitute. And Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is speaking about that Jesus took down our two biggest foes. He took down death. He took down the devil. And Christ did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So this morning, the necessity of the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation, the blessings of the incarnation. I was thinking, you know, today, do you realize that one of the, the benefits and one of the blessings, it's like blessings that are just multiple, you know? It's like one blessing after another. It's, uh, you, you get one gift and then you look around and you see another gift. But, but the blessings that we receive, and one of the blessings specifically in this passage is, is what? It, is that we no longer have to fear that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. We were slaves. We were oppressed. We, we had no hope. Christ freed us. And we were freed through Christ, and no longer do we have to face the fear of death. No longer are we under lifelong slavery. This morning, do you realize that if Christ has freed you from the greatest fear of humanity, what are you fearful for today?
I wonder in this room, I wonder how many people are concerned about different things. We all face fears. We all face uh, concerns. We all face anxieties. I want you to think to yourself right now, what am I fearful of? What am I fearful of? If, if Christ Jesus has released me from humanity's greatest fear, I can be confident that he will be Emmanuel, God with us, and walk me through my day-to-day fears. There's so much hope here. There's so many realities of the Christian faith. So this morning, let's consider, let's reflect on the miracle of the incarnation. There's a passage in Malachi. Our Bible study group is about to go through Malachi. We've been going through the prophets. And in Malachi, it speaks about the day of the Lord. And it speaks about the return of of the Lord's return. And it says something that I love. And it speaks of this freedom. What does it look like to experience the freedom that Jesus brings? It says in verse 1 of Malachi 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day, the day that is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Love that picture. Freedom. Leaping like a calf from a stall. The incarnation brings about a new reality. Today, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you believed on Christ? Is Christmas just a theoretical time where you realize the traditions and you realize why it's celebrated, but do you see in Christmas and do you see in the incarnation the reality that your only hope is for him to partake of the same things? To look at him and see the reality that in his death, you now have life. You now have freedom You have forgiveness of sin. You now have hope. And there's no fear that can overcome you because he has conquered the greatest enemies. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you for the reminder of what you've accomplished for us through the incarnation. I pray, oh God, that if there's anybody here today that has never come to saving faith, I pray that your spirit would bring them to you. I pray that they would experience salvation. But I pray, oh God, that for the believers in this room, I pray we would live out of the reality and the hope of what we read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I pray we would experience the freedom that you brought us. I pray this Christmas season, we would reflect, we would adore, we would be grateful, we would show thanksgiving, and we would really 
reflect and meditate on the miracle of the reality of this freedom. Thank you that you have defeated our enemies and that you've brought us a way of hope and a light through the glorious good news of your son. I pray that would be all of our hope. I pray that would be all of our experience day to day as we live out of the reality of the meaning of the incarnation. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.